From Melton Demers and Jill Carlson, welcome to What Grinds My Gears, a podcast about the bizarre and buzzworthy happenings in the world of cryptocurrency. Each week, we delve into one key theme and examine it through a broader financial, political, and cultural lens to learn from the past, understand the present, and explore the future. All opinions expressed by Meltem, Jill, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Meltem, Jill, and guests may maintain positions in the currencies, assets, and companies discussed in this podcast. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events on crypto, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. It was late 2013 when the website first appeared. The site could only be accessed through Tor, an anonymity-preserving browser often referred to as the dark web. And this site was dark indeed. What the site listed was bounties, prices upon the heads of major figures in global politics. Barack Obama was up there for 40 bitcoins. Ben Bernanke was on the market for over 100 bitcoins. If you assassinated the listed person, the website promised, then you could claim the payout. To claim it, you had to have accurately predicted the date of the person's death and recorded that in a hash function on the Bitcoin blockchain. This, so the creator of the site said, would be sufficient to prove your involvement in the assassination and claim the money. Now, none of the figures listed on the site were assassinated, but the story demonstrates the dark sides of completely open markets. This week, we're going to be talking about prediction markets. From gambling to synthetic derivatives to assassination markets, we're going to cover the good, the bad, and the ugly. So as Jill's story demonstrates, prediction markets are really just markets that are used to trade on the outcome of events. Now, the market for the likelihood of a particular outcome can take two forms. It can take the form of a binary market, or it can be open-ended. So to give you two examples, I'm going to make two different bets with Jill. Jill, do you, feel like a, do you feel like gambling this morning? <laughs> I'm ready to roll the dice. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's like 6 a.m. in San Francisco, but Jill's ready to gamble, so she's clearly a degenerate gambler. I just got back from Nevada, so... Well practiced. You're feeling it. All right. So um, <laughs> let's do a binary bet first. So the first binary bet is, do you think the price of ETH will be above $100 on December 31st, 2019? I actually do, Melton. I think it'll be above $100. Excellent. So you're going to take the yes side of the bet. I'll take the no side of the bet. We'll agree on a price and we'll go ahead and form the contract. So that's a binary market. Now let's do an open-ended one. So open-ended, I'd ask Jill, what do you think the price of ETH will be on December 31st, 2019? And what are you willing to pay? Oh, geez. See, this is a lot harder because it's not just a yes or a no. I've got to actually come (laughs) up with a number now. So I'm going to go with 120. I actually don't think the market's going to move that much from here. Okay. And what are you willing to, how convinced are you? What are you willing to put up for that 120 number? Um, we have this running joke, you and I, Meltem. I'll bet you one ETC. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jill. That's great. That's great. But um, that. there you go. So there you have an example um, for those listening who aren't familiar with uh, prediction markets. But if this sounds like we're just gambling to you, 
you would be 100% right. That's exactly what prediction markets are. But prediction markets are really interesting, and they have a lot more to their history and application than just betting on who's going to win, say, a football match. And for those who are listening who are from the UK, I will say when I've lived in the UK, which has been three times in my life so far, I've been a regular customer of Ladbrokes, and the markets they are willing to make on different game outcomes are pretty amazing. So shout out to our friends in the UK um, who have got the markets pretty much figured out. The other connection I want to make here is in our episode a few weeks ago about surveillance capitalism, which you can find on iTunes, we actually talked about how consumer data is increasingly being used in order to create behavioral predictions. So in effect, surveillance capitalism is a type of prediction market. It's not one where uh, consumers or individuals are making bets on different types of behavior, but we're actively farming historical behavioral data in order to try to predict future behavioral outcomes and design products and services that are going to be better at capturing the consumer share of wallet or incentivizing someone to take a particular action. And this um, actually is a type of prediction market for human behavior. So I just wanted to make that connection because the topics we talk about aren't just random. But Jill, since you're a historian, um, why don't you talk us through the history? Yeah, well, it's, it's funny as you bring up surveillance capitalism there, a lot of the time you hear prediction markets associated with sort of free market capitalism. Um, which a lot of, you know, our libertarian friends are huge fans of, of course. But then surveillance capitalism, a lot of these same people really strongly believe in the right to privacy, of course. And so there's an interesting tension there, what the interplay is. And I bring this up because, uh, you know, there are a lot of, there's a lot of history around economists having different opinions of prediction markets, of this coming into play in in terms of people thinking through planned economies and the pros and cons. Um, Mises, Ludwig von Mises, uh, wrote about prediction markets or information markets way back in the 1920s. He argued that planned economies, in the context of socialism, became distorted in part because information about supply and demand and pricing was not open and that people couldn't have sort of the free flow of access to those information markets. Now, of course, this is a far cry from the sort of straight up gambling that we were doing a few mm-hmm. minutes ago, but mm-hmm. it's relevant nonetheless. Hayek, Friedrich Hayek, also wrote along these lines in the 40s. And then more recently, there's a great sort of pop science book called The Wisdom of Crowds that's popularized a lot of this thinking. Super worth a read if you find this episode interesting. All right. So we've talked about a lot of different ways to gamble, basically, with prediction markets. But let's go beyond gambling here. So what are prediction markets actually good for? Jill, as we like to ask, but why? What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) Well, in this case, uh, making lots of money. Political betting, in fact, has been big, big, big business for hundreds of years. And it's not just for people to make money if their guy or now gal wins, but before modern day polling, political betting could also be used as a predictive indicator as to who would get elected. And in fact, you see this in the US with the massive size of the market for politics. Um, The reason people contribute so much money to campaigns is because they want their candidate 
to win and have more resources than the other candidate. Um, one modern day sort of twist on this is an idea that gets used a lot in crypto. Jill, I'll hand it over to you because I hate saying this word. <laughs> Utarchy. Yeah. So if if you followed the Ethereum community at all, you've probably heard the word futarchy get thrown around. Um, it's an idea that was proposed by economist Robin Hansen years and years ago, I think in the early 2000s, about how we can use prediction markets in governance. So not talking about how people get elected, but once they are elected, how they can use prediction markets in order to decide whether a proposal or policy would actually be better for their society, for the good of the whole. Mm -hmm. And the idea here is that people would be able to bet on whether that given proposal or policy would actually do good things for them and for their communities and for their societies. And using these markets, the governors could take a look and see sort of where things, where things would be headed based on what they would, would implement. And we'll talk more about this um, later on in the episode when we delve into what's happening in our world, the world of crypto um, with these markets. But let's talk about the political market just a little longer because I think there is an interesting angle here. So if you're a political type, your bet um, is not only a way to ensure or try to ensure a certain type of outcome, but it can also be a hedge, right? So for those who aren't acquainted with the idea of a hedge, basically, if you're implementing an investing strategy, um, typically what you'll do is you'll be making a bet on a particular um, event happening in the market. So if I'm bullish, meaning I'm optimistic on, say, Apple stock, I think Apple's going to come out with great new products, I will go long Apple, meaning I will have exposure to Apple and will be taking a bet that the price goes up. Now, what I want to do if I'm a smart investor is I don't just want to be naked long, right? So the idea of naked is you aren't covering yourself. I want to create a hedge. I love being naked. I do love being naked. But this (laughs) podcast is PGs. We're going to leave it at that. Okay, we can Um, cut that. We can cut that out. No, it's fine. We can leave it, Jill. Let's be our authentic selves. (laughs) What what you can think of it as is, um, so if you're long Apple and you haven't uh, created any counter positions to hedge that risk, you're said to be naked. You don't want to be swimming naked in the markets, especially not when the bears come out and short the shit out of Apple stock. So what people will do is they'll do something called putting on a hedge. And what a hedge is, is basically a position that you buy very cheaply. And Jill, I'll let you get into how they buy this. But it's a position that you buy fairly cheaply that minimizes your downside risk. So the way you can think of it is you're effectively creating a price floor for yourself and that um, that basically caps the amount you will lose and you're creating no price ceiling, meaning you have unlimited upside. And these types of strategies is the work of quants and other types of mathematicians, myself included, who do this in financial markets. So this is an interesting way that you can actually use political prediction markets is to hedge your risk. So for example, if you have a lot to gain, perhaps personally or financially, if Howard Schultz gets elected president, then you may actually want to put big money on Trump winning. That way, if Trump does actually win, you'll have a lot of money and you can hedge some of your risk as a result of your preferred candidate not getting elected. That's right. And to all of our Wall Street listeners, this will all sound very familiar because as you know, Wall Street makes these kinds of bets all the time. On Wall Street, however, you can't just call this gambling. No, no, no. 
everything has to have some fancy jargon to disguise what it actually means on Wall Street, right, Melton? Well, Jill, uh, that's because we work in finance. <laughs> high finance, indeed. Finance. So in, in high finance, these are called synthetics, synthetic markets, synthetic derivatives, synthetic products. Now, what does synthetic mean? In the real world, synthetic means fake, just like the synthetic materials and the leggings that I'm wearing right now. Wait, Jill, are you wearing the synthetic leather leggings? I'm not wearing the leather ones today. These are just okay. Lulu's. And <laughs> are we going to do matching legging wearing? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe on one of the panels that we're on on Blockchain Week. Kill me now. Okay, sorry. I'll let you continue. <laughs> so synthetics, synthetic materials in my leggings mean that they're fake materials. In the context of finance, finance, what does this mean? It again means fake. A synthetic product is one that's engineered to simulate or to fake a certain asset or position while altering certain key characteristics. So an example of this would be if, say, I'm an investor and I want exposure to the price of European tech stocks, but I don't want to take on euro currency risk. Well, I could probably call up my banker friend. Hey, Meltem, you're a banker, right? And I can ask you to structure me a synthetic derivative that achieves that goal. So long European tech stocks, but not taking on the euro currency risk. And Meltem, as you can probably attest, this is big business. For Absolutely. Because basically what I'm doing is I'm going to price the risk of the bet you want, and then I'm going to sell it to you at a premium with the hopes that you will never exercise that bet, right? So I just pocket the premium. And in fact, uh, this has been the business of financial engineering for ages and ages. And uh, it's my view that most things in life are dependent on financial engineering and little else, but we'll save that nihilistic approach for another Most episode. things in life? Good Lord, that, that is grim. <laughs> I think it's worth actually delving down a little bit further, one more level, to the actual mechanics of what happens mm. here. Because usually when people say financial engineering, unless you work on Wall Street or unless you've worked on Wall Street, it's just sort of like waving this magic wand and yes. then suddenly this financial product appears. So well, it's this black box, right? And everyone's like, oh, the quants. And I'm like, do you, do you know how this actually works? The, the mechanics <laughs> of it are that I call up Meltem and I say, hey, I want this product. So mm-hmm. again, let's say it's long European tech stocks, but short the euro. Now, mm-hmm. Meltem doesn't actually just wave a pro- magic wand and sell me this product. What actually happens is Melton will enter a bet with me that she'll take the other side. So Melton, you're going to say, okay, Jill, you want European tech stocks to go up and that to happen regardless of what happens in the Euro. Mm -hmm. So you'll say, okay, I'll take the other side. So I'll bet I Melton will bet that the price of European tech stocks will actually go down Mm -hmm. and I'm going to control for the, yeah, you're going to control for the value of the Euro. You probably don't actually want to take that bet though, right? Like you're just giving that to me because I'm your customer. Mm -hmm. So what you'll do is you'll go into the market and you'll hedge that risk out. So you'll find ways to go short European tech stocks and then again, hedge out control for the value of the euro. Mm -hmm. You'll then charge me not only for that hedge that you've just put on, but as you mentioned earlier, you're going to charge me a big fat spread as a cushion for the risk that you can't account for. And then you're also going to add in a fee to account for your troubles on top of that. So I'm exactly. working over to you a lot of money in order to place this bet. 
But on the flip side, you're also protecting yourself because every investor, every asset manager, everyone who manages a portfolio should have metrics around their level of risk exposure. And again, we've seen when people are not managing risk, how things go wrong. Uh, for people who are interested in the evolution of financial engineering, um, there's a great book about the rise and fall of a hedge fund called Long-Term Capital Management, or mm -hmm. LTCM. Um, I believe it's called When Genius failed. Um, but it's basically this wonderful book. Um, my former professor, Bob Merton, is in it. Um, basically, it's about this man, John Merriweather, who hired all of the smartest Nobel Prize winners in quant finance um, in the world to come and work on this hedge fund. They created this massive fund. Um, they accumulated AUM like none other. We're doing really well. Um, we're designing these really complex mathematical models and doing all of this really complex financial engineering. And then at their peak, when they busted, um, what ended up happening is they had so many of these synthetics, so many of these hedges that were impossible to untangle, so many complex products they had created that the amount of systemic risk it introduced to the broader financial system uh, ended up totaling, I think it was close to $4 trillion. It was some insane amount, um, but it's a, it's a great read for anyone who's interested in sort of the history of financial engineering and really explains some of the underlying contracts quite well. But and what can what go wrong? <laughs> everything can go wrong. But um, going back to this idea of synthetics and creating hedges, there are actually, this topic is starting to come up a lot more in crypto markets as we look at people who have taken unexposed risk on their books. Look at Every ICO treasury, though, right? This is the uh, business yeah. is in, is trying to figure out, well, how do you create a hedge? Um, and actually, all of the investment banks have products uh, that are basically designed as hedge products. So um, they'll look at a particular portfolio, a particular sector, say it's tech, say it's a uh, Brazilian energy sector, and they'll create a synthetic portfolio um, that gives you a natural hedge to that. And so this is really a big business. In my view, um, it's only a matter of time before we see this business come into the crypto space. And this is actually an area I have been spending a lot of time thinking about pricing, contract construction, how you'd actually do this um, with an asset that's digitally settled as opposed to physically settled, as we talked about on last week's episode with interoperability and clearing and settling. But basically, um, before we get rambly on all things finance, because we could certainly do that, what we want to say with all of this is prediction markets are a big big deal. Many economists, philosophers, um, politicians have spent a lot of time thinking about prediction markets, and they actually have a lot to do with cryptocurrency. So let's talk about it. So cryptocurrency and prediction markets. There is no other place to start with this than a protocol called Augur. 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 It was started in 2014 by two guys, Joey Krug, who I think was like 17 at the time, right, Meltem? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> and Jack Peterson. And the idea was to create a decentralized marketplace for predictions using, you guessed it, cryptocurrency. Well, four years later, and they shipped. I think that's actually not that bad considering all the challenges, the complexity of the architecture, the yep. need for extensive code reviews and audits, 
not to mention the regulatory gray area that they operate in. Well, unlike any good cryptocurrency project, I think they had their own pardon internal struggles. Um, They had their own ERC-20 token that was trading before the actual uh, product launched. So I think, um, you know, it was an interesting project to watch because it's one that kind of straddled the 2015 world of crypto when they initially did their ICO at around the same time that the Ethereum project was doing its ICO. And then they also lived through the vagaries of 2017, 2018 ICO run. So it's one of these unique projects that has straddled um, two unique phases of crypto history. That's right. And it's it's important to remember just how different 2015 looks. When you were doing an ICO in 2015, that was not like that was not something that had been done a bunch of times before. There were no SAFTs. There were no kind of frameworks for thinking about this. So the times they have changed. Well, we I'll won't... tell a quick, hold on. I want to tell a quick anecdote. I'm going to go off topic for a moment. So I want to give quick, a quick shout out <laughs> to um, the Crypto Castle in San Francisco, which was a house um, that Jeremy Gardner, who's an investor in the space, um, had sort of been running. So I ended up staying there like one of my first weeks working in the crypto industry because hotels in San Francisco are so insanely expensive. Um, and that's where I started talking to someone about Augur. And um, I had to figure out how to buy Ethereum in the Ethereum crowd sale in order to buy into the Augur crowd sale. And so that was really my first exposure to ICOs. And so it just was, uh, it's just such an interesting moment in time to go back to. I think I was, you know, I was a tender little 28 year old, fresh out of grad school, as bright eyed and bushy tailed. But mm-hmm. I, um, I always think about that moment in time. It was such a, a funny night. I met a lot of people who I'm still friends with to this date. And we kind of like to laugh about just how naive I was. It was, it was wonderful. I knew Those nothing. Were the days. I, still, I still know nothing, but I'm just more vocal about it now. <laughs> so we won't get into all the details of that night, nor will we get into all the details of how Augur works here, but we will note a few things. One that we've already mentioned that Meltem just got at is that it's deployed on Ethereum via smart contracts. Now, the important thing here is that it's totally open source. And the founders and the backers of the project have been very careful to emphasize that they don't control it. They aren't responsible for how it gets used. If someone wants to download the Augur source code and make a prediction on it and place bets, that is not their responsibility to monitor or to police. This is super important, given given what we talked about at the start of the episode in the context of assassination markets. And also due to the fact that the bets made on Augur maybe might just be running afoul of the CFTC who regulates a certain subset of those synthetic derivatives we talked about earlier in the United States. Well, and in fact, um, since I am now a licensed financier, um, one of the things is you need to have very specific licenses to be able to create prediction markets and to write options and synthetic derivatives. Um, And so, again, I think one of the concerns with Augur, and in fact, there's been a political debate um, that's been going on around this, is is it possible for people to sue or go after um, the people who create software? that can be used to write smart contracts. If you haven't been following this debate, we'll link it in the show notes, but it's actually a really interesting discussion, particularly with some of the efforts to sue people around the Bitcoin hard fork. And no, that is not a joke. But again, I think um, one angle, we won't delve into it too much in this episode because neither Jill nor I are lawyers, although at this point, arguably we may be crypto lawyers. (laughs) Definitely not, not me. (laughs) 
but, but I think this is a really interesting area for the lawyers who are listening, for the people who are on the regulatory and policy side. Um, there is still a lot of gray area here that is undefined. So I think it'll be very interesting to watch to see what happens. So that's one thing to note. The other main aspect of Augur's implementation that we want to point out here is the role of REP, its token. Now, unlike most of its utility token ICO brethren, Augur and REP actually has a purpose, or so I think. So there's this huge problem that faces prediction markets, which is the question of who gets to determine what the true outcome is. This is called the Oracle problem. You need to have a way for all parties to a bet, to agree upon the source of truth for the outcome. This might sound pretty simple, but let me just give you the example to go back to the synthetic derivatives contract that Meltem and I created earlier. So I'm not just merely going to write, you know, if we're betting on, again, the price of the euro, say, if the value of the euro is over one to one with the dollar, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to write, if the value of the euro is above that, according to the Bloomberg data feed at 11.59 and 59 seconds on December 31st, blah, 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 blah. So precision and consensus around the data source is absolutely critical here in order to mitigate disputes about the outcome. Right. And this is exactly why the token was called REP. REP stands for reputation. Um, and so the idea that I think is interesting, typically in the world of finance, if you're creating and pricing a derivative, you'd have a really lengthy contract and the contract would contain numerous clauses which are related to extraordinary events, how things will be priced, where the data will be attained from, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, what you're trying to do is minimize the gray area around this contract and be as specific as possible so that there is zero confusion into as to how a trade will be logged and settled. Um, but what's interesting here is in the crypto market, uh, how are you going to do that? Last week, in fact, we talked about all of the vagaries around data, accuracy, precision in this market. So in a decentralized marketplace, you don't have this luxury of working with a known counterparty, having lawyers involved who are writing the contract and who can specify all of the terms and clauses. And so with Augur, they needed a decentralized or sort of distributed communal way of agreeing on the true outcome, which was done via this token. So REP, as we mentioned, is this token associated with Augur. And the way it works is people who hold this token have to stake it on the outcome of bets made using the protocol or else they will lose some of their rep. This is called um, slashing. And so people are incentivized to stake and stake correctly. And so effectively, over time, as you stake more and more, you build a quote unquote reputation of being honest, right? And this is a pretty interesting use case of something called shelling points in real life. Jill, do you want to just quickly define shelling points? Because I feel like people throw the word around and people don't really know what it means. So I think the easiest way to define a shelling point is to just give an example. So Meltem, I'm going to ask you, meet me in Paris. Now, we can't communicate, say we don't have cell phones that work in Europe, whatever it is. We can't communicate. I've just said, meet me in Paris on Friday. Now, Melton, where are you going to meet me? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I am going to meet you in front of the Louvre at 12 noon on Friday. Are you joking? <laughs> no, I'm 100% serious. Okay, well, normally, 
So 12 noon <laughs> is, is correct. Normally when you ask people this question, they will say, I'll meet you under the Eiffel Tower at 12 noon. This is sort of uh, the common thing that people just immediately think of like, okay, it's Paris. What is the big landmark there? Where would be sort of a natural point for me to meet someone? The oh, Louvre is also thinking a about big landmark. We were gonna, well, I was thinking about where we were going to eat crepes and drink wine. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'm sure that there are creperies by the Eiffel Tower as well. But to make a point, normally when you would ask someone this question about Paris, they would say the Eiffel Tower at 12 noon. Or if you would ask someone this question about New York, they would normally say uh, Grand Central Station again at 12 noon. And so these are examples of real life shelling points of uh it doesn't have to be a place. Usually, in fact, it's not a place. It's right. a concept. You're describing convergence. Convergence, right? You're describing exactly. convergence here. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, the idea that people sort of look for standard, um, standard, socially accepted, uh, widely used reference And points. so what does this have to do with rep and auger? So mm-hmm. if there is a correct answer, then people will converge on that correct answer. If there is one source of reality or truth, if the question is, how far did England make it in the finals uh, last year of the World Cup, then mm-hmm. people will converge on the correct answer, which I believe was the quarterfinals, right? So, but here with rep, uh, there's just one interesting wrinkle I want to point out, which is one of my favorite wrinkles in all of crypto history. Uh, So Rep had this prediction market on the outcome of the US midterm elections. And in this contract that got written, which again, was written by, you know, a random person on the internet, um, the way the contract was written, it was not very specific as to how the determination would be made. And so the contract was that the Democrats would take the House in the midterm election. Obviously, they did. But the question was, well, what's the date on this because the election outcome was determined, you know, several months prior to people actually taking office. And so this is a great case where the rep community um, was activated and someone in the community was called on to be the oracle for this particular outcome and to make a determination as to how this contract should be settled. This person was a Twitter cat with about uh, 200 followers. Um, I believe their name is Poyo Cat, but I can link it in uh, the notes. And uh, fortunately for for all of those watching, this particular Twitter cat had a delightful sense of humor. <laughs> and so it uh, led to some pretty interesting, um, like pretty interesting spectacles, just watching how this would get settled and how specificity would get determined. But I think, again, it's just interesting to note the evolution instead of dealing with a slew of lawyers and contracts and arguing uh, through expensive litigation, we had basically community way to resolve how this contract should be uh, settled. And so to me, this is a great example of where I think these prediction markets might be heading. And it uh, creates a lot of really interesting white space, blank space for people to start to experiment. I think it creates a lot of interesting area for academic exploration as well. Um, Jill, I think we're going to see a lot of white papers, like actual PhD level white papers um, that are game theory dissertations about. I was going to say, those are, those are dissertations, not white papers. <laughs> Well, they're going to be written in LaTeX font, which if I could ICO LaTeX font, I I would. (laughs) I love gambling. I can gamble on Augur now. But Jill, that can't be the only way for me to gamble. Uh, Let's talk about other prediction markets in the world of crypto. 
Yeah, so Augur is far from the only tool that's exploring this area. Another example of a company and a product working on this is Numeri, which I'm a huge fan of the company. Um, they're based here in San Francisco. What is Numeri? It's a hedge fund with a very cyberpunk aesthetic. Shout out to Natasha Jade, who is responsible for a lot of that. And they, they also just... make epic videos. Can I just say um, their creative direction, which I think is also largely influenced by Natasha, is quite excellent. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's awesome. Um, very much not what you expect when you hear the words hedge fund. So they just raised another venture fund around, uh, which is why I think it's also pertinent to call them out this week. Uh, and what are they? So they're a hedge fund. They're also a Quantopian style betting platform, I would call it. Uh, yeah. For those who Quantopian? don't know Quantopian, well, yeah. So um, as a Bostonite and MIT person, John Foss, who is the founder of Quantopians, well-known, um, basically Quantopian started out as a um, data platform where data scientists, Stormroom Quants, could submit their algorithms in a performance competition. And then what ended up happening is a few hedge fund managers um, ended up putting a lot of money into the platform and it became a hedge fund as well as an aggregation platform where people could compete based on their market algorithms or their sort of quant style style strategies. So pretty cool idea. That's right. So it's basically sort of open sourcing and crowdsourcing the ability to make hedge fund style, quant style uh, predictions, bets on the market. Now, how does Numeri play with this? So the way that Numeri started out was they saw this problem with what Quantopian was doing, which is that a lot of where the value lies is actually in the data itself. It's not just in creating an algorithm that will make money on that data. It's in the proprietary data. Hold on. For this data, though, this is what's called edge, right? So when we talk about investing, what we describe as edge or unique advantage is the ability of a fund manager to have information asymmetry or to have a way to find data no one else can find, which is where actually prediction markets can be really important, really critical in giving you edge. So I just want to call that out because I think a lot of times people who look at markets and look at investing don't understand that markets are really purely about information. And the way people make money in markets is through information. That's right. And so what Numeri did with this was they said, well, okay, what if we can encrypt the data and allow our data scientists, the again, the crowdsourced data scientists, the dorm room quants, to be able to run their algorithms and do all of their backtesting, et cetera, et cetera, on the encrypted data using homomorphic encryption. So super interesting application of a very cutting edge area of cryptography. Um, now, they've also developed further from this into an actual data marketplace. So they kind of view themselves, I think, as the first application or the first use case of a much larger open data marketplace that could be arbitrarily used. So I think actually, Richard, the CEO's example of this is probably the most illustrative. Um, and his example is that if you're a hedge fund manager and some kid who might be anonymous uh, sends you an email saying, hey, I have a really good track record of predicting Google's daily stock price. Um, you know, you should hire me on or listen to my predictions and give me some kickback, et cetera, et cetera. Like 
you're not gonna you're not gonna pay any attention to that email. Probably. You're gonna hit del- you're gonna mash the delete button and say uh, FFS. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, you might you might forward it along to your HR person, who will then try and find this person on LinkedIn to see where they went to college, see if they went to MIT, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's you wind up with this very uh, dislocated and inefficient market, both for that human capital, but also for uh, being able to tell whether or not this person's worth listening to. So what uh, Numeri and and their data marketplace is aiming to do is to create a more efficient market around this, where instead of just sending that email saying, hey, I have a really good track record of this, you might be able to say, hey, over the last couple of years, I've been able to predict Google's daily stock price with 70% accuracy. Oh, and by the way, I've hashed every one of these predictions into the Ethereum blockchain ahead of time. Obviously, a blockchain is immutable. So you can go back and look at that and know that what I'm saying is actually true. Moreover, I'm going to place a stake of money of, say, $100,000 on my upcoming predictions, and I'm willing to sell you my next prediction for, say, $10,000 in cryptocurrency. And if you are unhappy, if you don't like it, if it turns out that I'm wrong, then you're allowed to destroy a part of my stake in what's called griefing. So super interesting. It kind of takes the Augur protocol, I think, and turns it on its head in terms Mm -hmm. of where the staking is happening, where the betting is happening. Right. But really what we're talking about here, and again, if we distill all of this conversation we've had so far around all of the different ways prediction markets are being utilized, if we kind of distill it down to its core essence, markets are driven by sentiment, right? Human beings are predictably irrational, (laughs) um, which is something I really enjoy, but it can be really frustrating if you're an investor. Um, And really what we're seeing, I think what's been an interesting debate going on in the cryptocurrency community is, uh, are we really using this stuff to create a new banking system or a new financial system? And to what extent is it new? And to what extent are we replicating structures that already exist? And again, one of the inspirations, I think, Jill, just to wax poetic here for a moment, if you'll indulge me, one of the inspirations Jill and I had when we started talking about doing a podcast and putting the time into research and, you know, put together content each week was this whole idea that a lot of the things we're seeing implemented in the world of crypto are ideas that have been implemented before in various form. They've been talked about all throughout human history again in various forms. And really what we're seeing now is the emergence of a new technology medium, a new uh, governance medium, a new social consensus medium that enables us to implement a lot of these ideas in new Ways And so I think it is important to call out, particularly with this week's topic around prediction markets, that at their core, uh, what we're doing is we're finding new ways to create signal. And really all investing, all decision making in life is based on your ability to differentiate signal from noise. And what prediction markets do is they allow people to attach a a financial incentive or a financial stake. They allow people to put skin in the game around their predictions, around their views. Did you just quote Taleb, Malta? Oh, I know. Jill and I have a no Taleb book title 
rule. <laughs> so I just, I just broke a rule. But I think you used it last week, Jill, so we're even. But I think this is an important point when we talk about uh, prediction markets and, and the future. Really what this is, is we now have a unique mechanism to enable people to anonymously make predictions, to enable people to manufacture signal. And I want to talk about that as we start to wrap up here around how we might start to manufacture signal and how this is already happening in some crypto markets. But at its core, what we're talking about is monetizing human sentiment. And again, this is the business model for um, surveillance capitalism as well, just in a slightly different form. But I do think that's sort of an important overarching concept to connect. So Armchair philosophy done. Um, I'll hand it back over to you, Jill, to talk about some of the other interesting things happening in crypto prediction markets. Yeah, absolutely. So as you say, a lot of this is about signal. A lot of it is also about convergence and uh, social consensus, the Oracle problem. So I want to call out another company that I work with. I have stake in the company uh, called Universal Market Access that is founded by two of my former colleagues at Goldman, actually who were both exposed very much to the world of synthetic derivatives, who took a look at cryptocurrency <laughs> and said, oh, wait, this is this is a good fit. Um, and they are taking yet another approach to solving kind of the Oracle problem that we outlined earlier with Augur. So worth looking up. Uh, but I also want to touch on the user interface level of all of this, because as we all know, Cryptocurrency products are notoriously hard to use. And I think anyway, that if you can't make it as easy to use as a regular gambling market, you're probably not going to get very far. And Vale is actually doing a really good job of doing just that. So Vale is built as a sort of user interface product on mm. top of Augur. Um, they recently yes. acquired predictions.global, which you can go to today, right now, <laughs> and see what's up there. Let me just go right now, actually, and see what the top predictions are. Yeah, and while you do that, um, I can talk briefly about um, concepts that are being implemented, not just in the world of pure prediction markets, but in the world of staking and governance outcomes using staking. So um, last week I hosted a little staking summit for different players in the staking space where we just got together and talked about the evolution of markets. There will be much more on that um, over time. And we're doing some pretty cool stuff as a group, which I'm excited about. But one of the key things we talked about was staking derivatives and in fact, um, starting to create prediction markets for staking outcomes. So for example, um, if there's an upcoming governance decision in a particular protocol, uh, what you you could do is create a prediction market around that particular governance decision. So one simple experiment uh, could be, for example, you know, in this recent Tezos vote that happened uh, called Athens for proposal amendment, you could have created a prediction market that said uh, vote for A versus vote for B, which were the two options, and then allowed people to put capital at stake on these outcomes. And then people would look at this market to try to get a sentiment for how things were moving. And in fact, uh, there is a company called Union Marketplace called by a guy named, uh, pardon, run by a guy named Shane Copland here out of Brooklyn. Um, Shane is also super young, has also <laughs> gotten bitten by the crypto bug. But one of the cool things he's been working on is can you create a prediction market around different events? Um, he's been using Augur a bit. He's been using other tools. But the idea is, for example, uh, you could create a prediction market saying, I believe the number of bakers in the Tezos protocol will be above 160 on X date. And then what you actually might see is someone who has the ability to spin up bakers, 
um, which are these particular types of nodes in the Tezos network, actually take that bet um, and then actually spin up stakers to try to meet that bet. And that's a bet he actually ran, which I think was really cool um, to actually start to see how do people respond to different financial incentives. And so in my view, um, this idea of combining prediction markets with proof of stake protocols where governance decisions are made on chain is going to be an extremely fruitful and extremely interesting area to apply these types of markets because people are going to start to be able to, A, hedge on uh, the the event of, uh, pardon, the outcome of particular governance events. But two, more importantly, I think they're going to be able to influence outcomes using these markets and using them to express sentiment in new ways. All right. So we've just talked about a whole lot of crypto babble stuff. Um, but Not let's- just crypto babble, though. We had some economics some, in there, some phenomenons. Okay. But uh, like we say, what is it good for? So I actually think that prediction markets, as I said at the start of this episode, are one of the more promising areas of product market fit in crypto. And I think that because it is beneficial for them to be global in nature, for them not to be uh, centralized in one given jurisdiction or country, which you can really only achieve in crypto. Don't get me wrong, it's still going to be regulated jurisdiction by jurisdiction. It's global in nature and also censorship resistant. I actually think that that is super important here, both in the sense of if you are creating a sketchy market, you're trying to create a somewhat sketchy bet, then you probably want that to be censorship resistant for sort Mm -hmm. of obvious and perhaps nefarious reasons. But also Mm -hmm. in the Numeri example, it's really important to have the immutability uh, factored in there in order to be able to prove certain things about your history. And moreover, I would add in, um, you know, examples we've seen of historical markets um, that have been controversial. Anytime you have these central points that can be choked or attacked, um, it becomes very difficult to run these markets. And lastly, I would add in um, that the the other aspect I think is really fascinating is um, the fact that the governance of these markets is evolutionary, right? A lot of these mm-hmm. teams that are creating these markets talk a lot about how they would like to dissolve the team or foundation over time so that there is no central entity, no central coordinating body, no central governing body, that these tools become sort of self-sustaining, which is something we haven't really seen historically um, because these things have required ongoing leadership, stewardship, et cetera. And that's where the ability to have, you know, a community of contributors, participants who are pseudonymous or with the um, the implementation of better privacy preservation technology could potentially even be something close to anonymous. All of these things are incredibly powerful. Absolutely. Now, one thing that I want to bring up, because we haven't done actually that much gear grinding this episode. We've been pretty neutral, <laughs> neutral Why positive. Optimistic, Jill. Yeah, Why? Yeah. Oh. But I, I want to raise one question here as we wrap up this conversation, which is what happens to these marketplaces? And in particular, what happens with regards to the Oracle problem when we start seeing parties have non-monetary incentives? So, for example, I could imagine an election candidate, uh, maybe there's a betting market placed on whether or not he or she will win or whether or not he or she 
did something in the past or voted a certain way or some sort mm-hmm. of uh, mm-hmm. something that could be damaging to them if the bet comes out in one direction or the other, damaging to their reputation, damaging to their chances. What happens when you start to see these types of situations where the candidate would be perhaps incentivized to go into one of these systems, buy up a whole bunch of stake or put down a whole lot of money on a side that is not actually reality. Again, not in terms of placing the bet, but in terms right. of determining what is the true fact there. Well, and uh, to me, what's interesting here is all you need to do is look at the U.S. political landscape. So we have people like the Koch brothers. <laughs> we have people like Sheldon Adelson. Um, we have people who are, have become fantastically wealthy thanks to the magic of capitalism. And ironically, or perhaps unironically, Sheldon Adelson became very wealthy through gambling and running casinos. Um, but what they're doing is they're using their financial capital, their social capital, their network, their human capital to influence markets. Um, And so if they had these prediction markets, arguably, they'd be much more effective at achieving their aims. Because arguably, synthetics, prediction markets, etc., what they enable you to do is with little money, influence public opinion quite a lot. And so to me, there's this interesting, again, we go back to technology itself isn't moral or immoral or good or bad. Um, It's the way that people use it, right? And so while these things we've talked about a lot of optimistic use cases, and perhaps value creative use cases, arguably value creative to the whole of human society use cases. There are also a plethora of use cases that are not value creative to society that don't create the best outcomes, but serve the interests of a small group. And again, this is one of the risks in my view of linking uh, prediction markets and linking um, capital in this way and creating these tools is just as we can imagine all of these great ways that can be utilized. There are also a number of things that are inevitably going to happen that are extremely dark. But I'll end on an interesting note. So last year, I was pitched this movie called Death Pool. And it was about an ICO token for a uh, assassination market. And what would happen, what all I remember about the pitch is at some point in the movie, um, so there would be like a zoom in on a computer screen for this prediction market and someone would push a button and the screen would flash and it would say, you've been liquidated. And um, then it would cut to like a scene where someone was being in a assassinated and they would yell, you've been liquidated. And I have to say, um, I have never laughed so hard. I think I actually may have peed my pants a little when I left because it was the funniest thing I had ever seen. And it just combined finance, crypto, and ridiculousness in such an amazing way. Incredible. There you go. You've been liquidated. I'll embarrass myself this week. I'll embarrass myself for the podcast, Bill. Thank you, Meltem. Well, this has been fun. I have to say you're the only person I would wake up for at 4.45 to discuss prediction markets. I love you too, Jill. But this has been great. (laughs) And thanks everyone for tuning in. Hey, this is Jill and Melton. Thanks for joining us for another week of What Grinds My Gears. We love hearing from you. So please hit us up on Twitter, send us feedback, join the conversation. Follow us on Medium at What Grinds My Gears, where we share a summary of each week's episode, references, reading materials, and of course, memes. 
Our episodes go live every Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. Eastern time. And if you're a crazy person like us, make sure you subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode and get it in time for your morning commute. Share it with your friends or better yet, share it with your enemies. Thank you so much for listening. We love you and we'll see you next time for What Grinds My Gears.